Hello, listeners. We invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome, welcome to, to the, the Art of War. All right, welcome back, everybody. My name's Sam. And I'm Clay. And this is the Art of War. And before we start, I'm sure you can already tell, but I got a new mic, and you guys don't have to listen to the atro- or atrocity that was my previous mic and how horrible it was of the background noise. Nope. So that that's nice. And I but, did not get a new mic, but, but I it sounds am a little, fine enough. Yeah, I'm a little stopped up, though, so yeah, a little bit of a but, sinus. But it's it's your mic's much better than my previous mic. So now we're good. So hopefully that's everybody true. can can enjoy this podcast a little bit more because the audio quality kind of upgraded. Yeah. I might but Clay, what battle... Yes, yeah, he might get the same one. Yeah. But what battle are we covering today, Mr. McClure? Yeah, so this one is probably one of the more obscure battles. I, I you know, lumped this, you know, in the likes of uh, when we co- covered the Battle of Breadfield and an obscure battle with not too much information of it, but the Battle of Julian Shing. Yeah, and, it, you know, like we tried to, while we were doing the Sino Japanese War covering it, we tried to kind of group like multiple battles together because. There's very little information about them, and also they kind of happen quickly, and not a lot of things occur that are worth talking about, noteworthy, noteworthy events. Right. And this time we're kind of like we're gonna like go back and and go over the Battle of the Yalu River, also, which we covered in the last podcast, but we're also gonna include it in this one too because they happen pretty much the exact same time. Yeah. And, and uh, it is there's there's some things we didn't cover about it, so yeah, we'll have some more information, but it might be a bit of a a shorter show as we get through this and next week's show should be a little bit longer as there's a little bit more talk about with that battle yep we'll make it up in the next podcast but all right so let's get started so i guess let's let's go back over what happened in the last podcast and what battle we covered right so we covered the battle of pyongyang which was a very important key battle for the japanese military strategy it pretty much ended their first phase of the war with Qing dynasty as they as the Japanese saw it. The first phase, right, was to drive the Chinese forces out of Korea and capture the Korean Peninsula. And they pretty much accomplished that by capturing the last Chinese stronghold in Korea of Pyongyang. Yeah, and they forced the Chinese to withdraw all the way back to Manchuria on the border between Manchuria and Korea, which is the Yalu River. And now they have an extremely defensive fortification on multiple cities along the line. They've also lost all of their their naval control of the surrounding coastal lands of Korea. So now they're they're in a really restrictive position, and Japan has free reign of all of Korea. And they've also appointed a uh, a Japanese orientated government in Korea at right. this time. So basically, they run all of Korea. Right. Yeah. And this, I, the, the naval portion is perhaps, I think, where the Qing dynasty had the worst decision making in this whole war. Yeah. Because Japan, right, is an island nation. It heavily relies on the ability to control the seas to be able to get its troops and its supplies into Korea and into Manchuria to actually fight the Chinese. So by giving up all of this ocean and the seas, the Chinese forces really allowed Japan to just kind of have free roam of whatever they wanted to do on the Korean Peninsula. And this was interesting because Lee Hongzong, the Chinese military leader that's pretty much directing how all the military efforts since he's the one that created the Beiyang 
military in the Beijing Navy, he does this consciously, right? He decides yeah. to pull back his Beijing naval fleet to the border of Korea and Manchuria at the Yalu River and gave up all of this or all of the sea to Japan. Well, I mean, the main reason I think that happens is because, I mean, how I would see it, I don't know exactly what, what the reason was, but with the Beiyang fleet, they only had several, two or three heavily armored ships that could even contest the Japanese fleet, and the Japanese fleet was fully armored. They were, you know, state-of-the-art for the time period warships. Right. So maybe he saw the the battle in the ocean completely pointless and knew that there was no chance that they could even rival the Japanese fleet who now had like pushed up all the way to the Yalu river. I mean, you see that also with, you know, the, the Chinese uh, industrial revolution, like military revolution, they, they acquired some of the current technologies and military uh, ability, but they didn't apply it everywhere, right? Like the same thing with the troops. Like they have the cr the good guns. They have, yeah. you know, some of the western training, but the troops aren't as trained and as well trained as the Japanese. The the fleet has armored warships, but not all of them are armored warships. You right. know, they, they have, did have artillery. A lot of, uh, yeah. wooden ships as as you covered in the last podcast. Yeah. That is So true. it's like, you know, maybe he sees like we've said before, we brought it, you know, we brought it multiple times. Maybe he sees it as just trying to be as defensive as possible and save their assets so that they could fight a defensive war instead of an offensive war. And then eventually the Japanese will just give up. That's a good point because uh, Korea is not the main goal for China, right? They just have to yeah. defend their homeland, Be mm -hmm. Beijing and uh, Manchuria. That's you know really what they want to defend. Korea is just kind of almost like a vassal state to China. So it's not, you know, the be all end all. If they lose Korea, they would like to keep it, but yeah, it's yeah. more important to protect the homeland. Also, you have to note that even when they're they're saying they're just losing Korea, they're also losing all of the island nations that they had control of that surround Korea, right? Like just them losing control of Korea, who's the port mm -hmm. country that lets their it gives them access to the ocean. They've now lost control of that the whole Pacific, right? So, yeah, they they lose a lot, but yeah, like you're saying, it's it's more important to secure their homeland and protect it and. That might be why he withdraws. But yeah, so then we that was the Battle of Pyongyang. It resulted in a Japanese victory, heavy mm -hmm. Japanese victory, a bad, bad Chinese loss. And uh, now there's uh, a storm of brewing towards the Yalu River. The Japanese, they want Manchuria. That's where they're aiming now. And right. they're moving towards the Yalu River. Yeah. So yeah, the second phase as designed by General Yamagata Aritomo of the Japanese military is to push into Manchuria and start capturing a lot of these other Chinese territories and then eventually push towards Beijing. Yeah. And you know, this, it, it, it's important to note that the entire time that they're, they're moving through Korea and they're taking all these cities and stuff, they're getting more and more and more in reinforcements. Cause it originally, in, whenever Japan made landfall in Korea, they only had about three to 4,000 troops. Right. But now over this period of about five, six months, they've acquired about 10 to 15,000 right in Korea. And the actual army that's defending in, uh, in Manchuria against the Japanese is it's only about 20,000, right? So now the numbers are way more, they're more, way more realistic in terms of battles than they were before, where 
the Japanese were always overwhelmed, right? right? Now they they're a little bit closer. They're still a little bit overwhelmed, but they're getting they're getting a lot more reinforcements than they they had before. Yeah, they have complete control of Korea and the ocean. Right. Yeah. China still has a numbers advantage, but it's not as overwhelming as it once was. Yeah. Yeah. So then we get to you know this this naval battle at the Yalu River, which is pretty crucial to Japan's control of the oceans. And you touched on this a little bit on um, some of the specifics on it. And I kind of yeah. want to just go in and retouch on some other things that I found that were pretty interesting. So apparently, and this might be one of the reasons why Lee Hongzang kept the Beiyang fleet back, but apparently they were not very well supplied with ammunition. Their mm-hmm. issues was embezzlement of funds and stuff. So a lot of their ammunition was not available and even in some of the accounts I read, the cannons were loaded with like porcelain instead of cannonballs just because they didn't have anything. So, yeah, they definitely were not prepared for a full out naval battle, which definitely showed. Yeah. And the, the, the actual like decisive end to the battle was that the two major ships of the Chinese Bing fleet ran out of ammunition so they had no choice but to to retreat right so yeah that's that and then you see that a lot with almost every single uh chinese battle that occurs in this period of time is that logistically they don't know or they can't manage this like very foreign army like they're not able to get the assets they need to manchuria to korea and so that you you'll see that the the troops that were defending on these land battles and on in forts and at the river they themselves don't have proper ammunition proper medicine proper whatever you need to fight a battle right Mm -hmm. and that you know that plays that plays a big part in this whole thing but yeah yeah the the yalu river the battle of the yalu river which there's three battles of the yalu river you don't get them mixed up with with the other two there's one during the russo japanese war and then there was there's one that happened a little bit later and yeah because one other thing that's important in this battle especially is because china actually had or the Qing dynasty has another naval fleet it's the southern fleet that patrols the southern seas it's called the nanyang fleet and it also has some steel cruisers but because china is you know almost divided into different territories they're, the Nanyang fleet is actually not on very good terms with the Beiyang fleet because they didn't really help each other out in wars previously. So the southern fleet does not go to help the Beiyang fleet with this encroaching Japanese force. So it's it's pretty important because in this naval battle, it's 10 Japanese ships versus 10 Chinese ships. So these extra mm-hmm. heavily armored cruisers from the Nanyang fleet could have actually tipped the the favor in the Chinese forces, but that didn't happen. And so the Beiyang fleet basically loses all of its boats, except for the heavily armored two cruisers and is able to retreat, but they've given up all control. Yeah. And also like we talked about in the previous podcast, the, the only redeeming factor about the battle of the Yala river was that Admiral Ding, he, he, he accomplishes his objective originally which is to drop off about 5000 chinese troops to the yalu river where they were retreating back to so he's able to at least uh transport 5000 troops right. to defend against the oncoming uh, japanese push right okay so then we'll get into the reinforcements of julian chang so as we recall from the past podcasts the main chinese general that's been overseeing the army and the troops was Yi Zichao. 
but he had two pretty bad defeats at Xiangwan and Pyongyang. So Li Hongzong basically gets rid of him. You know, it, it says that he was supposed to be executed for his failure, mm-hmm. but he gets out of execution. And in his place is this new person that's assigned who Song Chi, which I think is a pretty interesting choice given his history, but it seemed like he was personal friends with Li Hongzong, the Chinese military leader. So that's why he was giving control of the Chinese forces here. Yeah, and also, you know, you it seems kind of silly to think to transition um, your general who has a whole entire plan for defending against the the Japanese coming forces, right. but also it like makes a lot of sense. Like that, that's probably one of their better decisions because. Like, yeah, that's their strategy was not working up until this point at all. You know, it's, it just didn't it did. It wasn't uh, working to stop the Japanese. And also, like you see in the first two battles, the Japanese have pretty much the same strategy both times. Mm-hmm. And he was incapable of really stopping that strategy. Right? right. So, like, you know, poor, poor guy. But I think it was a good decision to appoint Song. Um, I'm going to probably disagree with you here because looking at song's history i mean yeah he had some success in the suppression of the taping rebellion but when he was he was given the task of being the overseer of the defense of manchuria especially from russia and you know given the different accounts i read it seemed like he was a pretty lazy leader and didn't really do anything to up the defenses and when i was some of the accounts i was reading actually said that some of the chinese soldiers abandoned the army because they didn't want to be under his command because they didn't see him as a powerful leader they sold him as a coward which might have some credibility to it to it based on what happens in this battle yeah i mean but i think logically their their approach is probably just like hey you know we've just lost one of our vassal states in our pacific territories and it's not working so we got to do something right so mm-hmm. they probably didn't have a, they didn't probably have a very deep well of of generals to pick from so they probably just selected the one that was more more you know custom more more uh, knowing right so they you know in the long run it probably didn't work out but i understand why they they appointed a new general yeah. and in the beginning he seems to be doing some good things so he has this defensive position that he knows he has to hold which is yuan cheng which is this defensive fort on the Yao, the northern bank of the yalu river and so song ching the newly appointed chinese military leader his first task is to just reinforce this northern bank of the Yalu River because he knows the Japanese forces are coming and they have to cross here. So he spends a lot of resources and manpower in doing that. He builds a ton of fortifications along 16 kilometers of the river. So he's really mm-hmm. he's expending a lot of resources to make it pretty secure. And Cheng itself is a pretty well-fortified uh, town. Yeah, and also, you know, this is a big river. This isn't some little, like, you know, stream. This is like a 400, 500-foot-wide river. It's right. massive, right? So, And he, it's also extremely long. And so he's going about, like, you know, the the Chinese prior with military engagements around the Yalu River, they didn't really even fortify on the embankments because the, the logic is like there's no way they're going to be able to cross, right? Mm-hmm. It's so, so huge, and we would see them coming from a mile away. There's, like, there's no way. They'd have to use boats to cross. 
And so for him to even take the action of of fortifying the embankments and, and making sure that there's no way for them to cross. Yeah, that's a, that's it was a pretty, a pretty good decision. And like, it's a shame it doesn't come into play and does not really, you know, yeah. super effective. But I feel I mean, I feel like it's it definitely is slightly effective. I mean, yeah, it's a smart idea because the fortifications span from two smaller fortresses with Julian Cheng in the center. And so it's it's a nice defensive position. It really is. But as we've seen time and time again, the Japanese forces are just much better in their planning of attack. And by the time the Japanese forces arrive at the Yalu River, they've already had scouts and engineers there yeah. assessing all of the Chinese fortifications. So they've had time to kind of start developing a plan. Yeah. So then, you know, uh, Yamagata, he... He has a plan in mind, and it's it's the same plan. Right. He wants to get across the river, and he wants to flank. That's what he wants to do. And you know, and like I said before, the Chinese have about twenty thousand troops at their disposal, twenty to thirty thousand on the entire, uh, you know, length of the the Yalu River. Yeah, but they're they're spread out across yes, exactly. the entire yeah. the sixteen much, kilometers. Yeah, much less in actually Julian Chang. They don't have the full fighting force. And also the the quickness that you see in the previous battles means that sixteen kilometers can't be traversed quick enough to maybe reinforce the Chinese, right? So his plan is to quickly cross the river to attack the the fortification of Julian Chang and to surround the city or flank the forces if they can get into the city. And, you know, the biggest problem is how do we cross the river? How do we get across this 460, 500-foot-wide river? Logically, they have to use boats, but mm-hmm. but he has a better plan. And this kind of is, is impressive of the Japanese. Once again, they kind of use an innovative strategy, and they do it very quickly, and it shows, like, the power of the Meiji meiji dynasty right yeah so yamagata arimoto and about ten thousand troops of the japanese first army arrive on the southern side of the yalu river on october 23rd october 24th they launch their attack Mm -hmm. so it's literally a day after they arrive yeah i was gonna say like clay said they had engineers there in preparation for how they're going to cross the river and so there might have been some some work being done but the pure scale of what they do means that like these engineers couldn't have done it by themselves they had to have the troops had to come and help build it and then get it done with in a day which is like wow that's that's crazy right yeah so during the night on the 24th they place an entire pontoon bridge across one of the deepest and fastest parts of the Yalu River. So if you've never seen what a pontoon bridge is, it's just basically a floating bridge that is just basically a bunch of, uh, what do you call, like shallow boats that link up together Mm -hmm. that you can then walk across. And you can actually, you know, move artillery across it as well. Yeah. And so they do this right in front of the Chinese defenses. Yeah. And but the only thing is that they do it at night, mm-hmm. which helps helps a little bit. But also, it's kind of a risky strat when you think about it, because they have constructed a bridge that 
can transport their troops, but it's not very strong, right? right? It can be easily shoved off of the embankment. It can be destroyed. They're not, you know, it's it's not one solid thing. It's multiple linked pieces. So if they just break off two to three, then they can't cross anymore. There's a giant gap in the water, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's they can't go any further. Also, this thing would was only about like five to six feet wide. So you couldn't have like a large force crossing at a time. It would have to be maybe three or four soldiers shoulder to shoulder walking across it. So if, if the Chinese met them with artillery, they could do some serious damage while they're crossing. Yeah. But, but, but unfortunately, since the Chinese army was so spread thin, they didn't really have the means to move all these heavy artillery. So, but the, the Chinese forces that were there were encamped in trenches so they were able to do some pretty heavy damage to the oncoming Japanese forces as they're crossing on this pontoon bridge. You know, they have no cover. They're just walking mm-hmm. on this open bridge across a giant river. So the Chinese forces on the other side are kind of free to take as many shots as they want. And this is yeah. really the only casualties that the Japanese forces suffer in this battle is crossing the river. Yeah. And and they put in a va- the Chinese put up a valiant fight. They They tried to defend the the last bit of the crossing but due to the sheer amount of troops that have already made it pretty much to the end of the bridge and also the fact that chinese are fighting with way less numbers and they don't have artillery at their disposal they just have their own their own guns and their their swords they quickly retreat back to julian chang and they and that basically permits the entire japanese force to cross which is about thirteen thousand troops Mm. and then once the japanese forces Cross, their first target is the the smaller fortress of Hushan, which is up the river north of Julian Chang. Because yeah, it's just basically three fortresses um, connected by the fortifications that Shang Qing created. So they're taking the northernmost fortress right now, and they're able to position their artillery similar to Pyongyang to fire into the fortress, and it falls pretty easily because of that. And you know the the next day on the twenty fifth, a full scale attacks launched on Julian Chang. Right. Yeah. So they they take a like Yamagata Aritomo takes a break because he tries he has to remuster his forces for yeah. what they assume is going to be a very lengthy and bloody siege of Julian Chang, which is heavily fortified. And it would make sense because you know the Chinese forces would know where the Japanese forces are. The majority are up the river, so they would probably move all of their other troops and kind of concentrate them as Julian Chang to have as many troops as they can in this armored fortress and be able to fight the Japanese. Yeah. And what really happens is that the Chinese are, they're ready for this Japanese attack. They have all of the things really at their disposal to defend against the siege. They still have numbers larger than the Japanese at this point. They have right. about 18,000 troops in the fortification of julian chang so if you look at it from like a military perspective they're still in the green it's still in their benefit to sit in the fortification and defend they have superior numbers and of course when you're trying to take any form of of castle fortification anything heavily defended you want to have the superior numbers and the japanese don't right and even even so even if the Chinese forces lose Julian Chang. If they're able to impose enough damages mm-hmm. to the Japanese forces, enough fatalities, that could be huge in deterring the Japanese forces from pushing further into Manchuria. Yeah. If they're able to kill a ton of Japanese troops, it takes so long for the Japanese to get more reinforcements, so it could 
be a great hindrance to the Japanese advancement. Yeah, and also, you know, I I was going to bring this up later, but this is like a perfect time for it. Uh, I was researching a, a bunch about the the main reason for the at the end of the Sino-Japanese War, the large casualties the Japanese faced, because, you know, in these battles we're all talking about and the, the ones to come, they have very little losses. Right. So then mm-hmm. but, but if you look at the end of the Sino-Japanese War, they have 20, 30,000 troops that die. And you're like, well, why is that? And the main reason is that the logistics of keeping an army, uh, a standing army in a foreign territory so far from home, even in the 1800s, it was it was very difficult. And there was disease spreading through the camps. There was sickness. So a lot of these Japanese troops were sick and they were dying in these encampments. And also, when we read about, you know, the Battle of Asan, the Siangwan, or the Yalu River, they they are taking little casualties but they have a lot of wounded troops and you know this is the 1890s penicillin hasn't been created there's not really a good solution to infection so these people that are getting injured and wounded they're dying afterwards it's just not shown in this one battle that they're dying so yeah if they could have you know killed two three thousand four thousand troops by defending gone out you know in alamo style and then they caused you know four thousand wounded that might have just been the end of it the japanese would have gone okay we took korea we can't suffer these losses anymore. This just doesn't make sense. And then it could have been done with. But the Chinese, but that's not what happens. yeah, the Chinese, like Clay said, they're kind of led by someone who's more. He's more focused on on pres- preservation of himself and like his troops than is of like you know defeating the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, the Chinese general Song Qing, he feared another flanking Japanese force and he feared that he would lose the fortification and a majority of his army. So he actually calls a retreat during the night before the Japanese launched a full offensive. And so the entire Beiyang army, all 18,000 plus troops retreat from Julian Cheng into further into Manchuria. Yeah. And you, it's like, you know, it's super bad like I've been saying multiple times, it was super bad for the Chinese, but this is like kind of like the nail in the coffin because that is the most fortified position they have the entire war. That is the most, like the highest likelihood that they were going to be able to defend against the Japanese because now the Japanese suffered in this battle, which is crazy. They suffered four deaths. They only lost four soldiers in this entire confrontation. That was on the pontoon bridge. They didn't even (laughs) engage the Chinese. Probably from just like, I don't know, 10 or so Chinese troops on the other side. And what's what's even crazier is because Song Qing called the retreats and it had to happen so fast, they left all of their supplies in Julian Cheng without getting rid of any of them. Mm -hmm. So the Japanese army... They come for a full offensive attack, a full siege on this fortress, and they find it empty, and then they find millions of of ammunition, plenty of food, million like thousands of cannon shells. So they're able to resupply their whole army without waiting for resupplies from Japan. And I feel like that's one of the biggest points here, because it just means they could just push on forward. Yeah. They don't have to They stop. don't have to wait for anything. Yeah. And also, uh, you know. Like I like we were talking about, it's the most fortified position you're going to have, and now that means that, Jap- or China is basically ensured that they can't take Korea because now if Japan loses a future battle, they're just going to withdraw back to Julian Chang, and they're going to hold <laughs> the Yalu River, and then you're going to have the same thing happen 
where the Chinese will have to try to take Julian Chang. So it's like they they've now secured their flank completely. They have yeah. no chance of losing the territory they've gained unless they're completely wiped out. But, you right. know, I mean, it is crazy to think about this is the, the Chinese forces most fortified position at this time. And Japan's able to take it within three days with four casualties. Yep. 140 wounded, probably died, but... But, but yeah, you know, probably Four died. killed. Four killed. And the, and the Chinese, I guess we have to throw in, the Chinese lost about 2,500 troops. Yeah. So it's which, just crazy. And that was from the, the troops withdrawing from the the Yalu River that were in the in trenches and getting mm-hmm. back to Julian Chang. That's where the losses came from. But... Yeah, it's, you know, it's it could be attributed to Song Ching, it could be attributed to to poor planning, it could be attributed to poor training on the on the yeah. troops part. Maybe and Song... just low morale, you know. Yeah, Maybe yeah. they had enough defectment of Chinese mm-hmm. troops that they couldn't hold the position. Yeah, that as I was going to say, I was going to say that, you know, the the Chinese may have not been faithful in their leader and maybe Song Ching wanted to hold it but then realized that the the amount of troops that were just dipping out of there was too many and so he mm-hmm. chose to order a retreat and like can you imagine the the uh, Qing dynasty how how upset they must have been after this oh yeah they appoint a new guy and the guy immediately retreats from the most fortified position yeah i imagine li hong zeng probably was definitely rethinking his decision yeah but you know it's interesting that he never directly leads the Beiyang army up to this point it seems like i don't know he doesn't get involved too much either. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the whole the whole the whole Chinese army at this time is just so poorly optimized. Like they don't have the correct things they need to really fight this war against the right. Japanese and they just keep trying. And really like it would have been in their best interest just right now to been like, All right, what are your terms? Yeah. Like we this isn't working. We we're we have the largest army that we've ever had and you know, right. in this, this war. We lost it. This is just bad for us. We gotta do I mean, you know. I mean, yeah, the Chinese military looks great on paper. You mm-hmm. know, the numbers wise, the supplies wise, they look really good, but it's just not been working against this better trained Japanese forces. Yeah, six hundred thousand plus troops in China that they aren't even really used because it doesn't it doesn't make sense for them to transport this vast amount of troops when they have the very poor logistics that they did at the time so yeah that you know you continue to see this they they just keep they keep trying which is valiant you know it's good that they they keep trying to to defend against the japanese and go with their plan but mm-hmm. it's just going so poorly yeah and an interesting thing i found uh researching this is because I've been always talking about the art that the Japanese have been making. You know, the Japanese, they have woodblock art for every victory so far in this war. They have one for this battle even. But what's interesting about this battle is that there's actually a Chinese piece of art depicting Song Qing retaking Julian Cheng with the Chinese military, <laughs> but that never happened. So I found that really interesting. Was yeah. it kind of like a propaganda thing or... Man, I, I'm not yeah, really sure. That could possibly be it because, you know, and then a few months they've lost Korea and probably is, you know, China was already a very divided country at this point. So it wouldn't be very good to tell the populace that they were losing this battle. So, oh, you know, oh, here, I just want to a little bit off topic, but I think this is really interesting and kind of an important, important point is uh, 
the Japanese, one of the Japanese strategies while they were taking all of these these fortifications and Korea and pushing through Manchuria was after they take it, they would have a group of of telecommunication engineers mm-hmm. that would be running lines of uh, telegraph lines right. so that they can communicate with basically Japan. Like they wouldn't be able to directly communicate them with them, but they could communicate with the port city that would mm-hmm. be able to go traverse to Japan. So they could get information within like a day or two back to their homeland. But China does not employ that. They do to an extent in some places that were already set up with telegraphs, but they don't have a telegraph network. So whenever True. whenever they're fighting these battles, they're not able to get word back to the the Qing homeland. They're able they're they're just doing it on their own, right? So maybe Song Qing could have been able to telegraph back and say, What do you want me to do? And then they would have said, like, hey, if you come back you give that fort, we're going to kill you. And then maybe he would have held it and it would have gone differently, right? But True. they're not able to communicate back to, to their main forces, their their homeland, and it, and it, it's just them. They don't have a way to communicate. And it's kind of crazy because this is the 1900s pretty much, right? Right. And they still don't have the telegraph network set up all across their country. Yeah, so. that, that is a great point, actually. I, I was kind of reading about that, but... Yeah. yeah, I didn't realize that China had not employed it at all. Yeah, well, they they employed like a son had some, and and some of the more you know uh, set up cities have it because you know they're mm-hmm. they're trade cities they have it, but like this Julian Chang doesn't have it because it's a fort, right? They don't have uh, telegraph lines running through it, so yeah, yeah. And then the meanwhile, the Japanese had been laying telegraph lines from Pyongyang to mm-hmm. the Yalu River by the time Yamagato Aritomo got there. Yep. So. They, they're doing stuff a lot, a lot better. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, Japan's able to capture the biggest fortification that's blocking them from invading Manchuria pretty much full on. And so now they're able to just go into Manchuria and capture a ton of small towns along their way as they're heading to kind of a very significant city, which is almost the Qing homeland city of Mukden, I believe. Yeah almost like the capital of Manchuria, which is where they're kind of setting the next target to, but they have some other smaller cities that they're capturing along the way. And they just have free reign to march on that. Yeah. And, you know, the Chinese strategy is just, I sound like a broken record when I say it, but (laughs) the Chinese strategy is to withdraw to a fortified position and defend. And their, their plan is to hold ports to hold coastal cities as hard as they possibly can because they really need those that that way to transport troops moving mm-hmm. land troops over land is not quick enough to be able to stop the Japanese from just taking all of Manchuria so they go back to a city called Lushunkao or Lushunkao it's hard to pronounce yeah and set up fortifications there which is a strategic port in Manchuria and they plan to to wait for the Japanese to make an attack on them. Yep, and it's uh yeah, well, we're going to cover it next week. It's it's definitely an interesting battle with a uh a surprising ending, I would yeah, say. Pretty surprising. Yeah, but we'll definitely get into that. It might be a more lengthy episode, but yeah, so that's it, I think, for this week. I don't have anything else I, I want to yeah, add. I don't, I don't really think there's anything else that I, I think we, we covered pretty much all of it. There wasn't really, yep. there was there was some stuff to cover, but there wasn't really a ton. 
So I think we yeah. got all of the important stuff for sure. But yeah, this was definitely a more obscure battle because even when you search Julian Chang, it doesn't come up except for this battle. So I don't yeah. even know if it's it's probably was just like a fortification on the river and was never used or I don't know though. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that does come up. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't find it. anything. <laughs> maybe it was it's, if we put in the actual Chinese name, it might come up. But. Yeah. Because I think the Chinese forces do recapture it in a later war. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, but then again, I'm not sure. Well, yeah. yeah, so so I think we that's got it. All. Yep. Thanks for listening, everybody. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Catch us next week if you have any comments or questions. As always, reach out to us on our social media. Yeah, and we're coming to the end of this campaign or this this war. So if you have any suggestions for upcoming. Uh, podcast let us know we'll be happy yeah. to do it yeah we may be taking a brief break maybe after this this um campaign yeah might might go to it, season two yeah we might go to season two i'll be gone for a little while so yeah we might try to record multiple podcasts and upload them while he's gone but you know also yeah. we've been doing this for a while so we might just take you know like a maybe a week maybe a month maybe two months break and then talk back on it so in that time you know if you guys find anything interesting let us know all right thanks everybody yeah check us out next week hi listeners we hope you're enjoying the podcast and if you are make sure to follow us on all of our social medias you can find our social medias in the description on our spotify page if you enjoyed what you heard make sure to check out our sister podcast gray skies each week the host eliza talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history and hopefully we're going to be able to collaborate with her yeah, so look forward to that.